Look, at the end of the day, some privacy has to be lost because like, if a manual tracer calls me up and says, hey, Xiaomi, like, you've been exposed last Tuesday. I know it had to be someone I walked by last Tuesday. And if it's a manual tracer, I actually know it's someone who, uh, who they knew. So it's like one of my friends or colleagues who was responsible. And like, look, I'm okay with that. This is a public health emergency. So there is re-identification risks, but the thing is beyond that, you don't want like spoofing and what you don't want to do is kind of broadcast an identity. Like if I'm sick, I don't want this big list to say, hey, Sean Cockett has been sick. This is where he went for the last two weeks. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast. Just a quick reminder, today's episode is part two of the episode that we started airing Tuesday of this week. So if you want, go back and listen to that, and then you can finish up with this second half. So along with testing and the Bluetooth, you said you mentioned you know cryptography and privacy, the numbers. So talk us through some of the tech you haven't talked us through you know, for your app or for the ideal app. Besides Bluetooth and testing and a little bit of that special sauce, what is it that's going to be in COVID safe? Also, is your app available? I just I looked on the store and I couldn't find it. I yeah, tell gonna... us about this app, what it's called, and when we're going to get it. Okay, let's yeah. start with COVID safe. <laughs> uh, and let's come back to the crypto side. Yeah, so yeah. so we did the, the Bluetooth side and you know we had a bunch of crypto people and they're all kind of talking to each other. We're going to talk to Google later today about some of this stuff. And so hopefully uh, there'll be coordination on that side. So I think one of the big things for COVID safe is the coordination with the, the manual contact tracers and and just you know the details to privacy and things like that. But right. the manual side is pretty critical because it's pretty reasonable to think that this Bluetooth side it's not going to be relevant until a much later stage till till when it's really going to be effective. So I think of this as phase two. Phase one is you know obviously we we'll need enough testing, but it's to really get teams of manual tracers and help them out. And for that, what we're going to do is we're going to have two functionalities. One is going to be what we call an assisted interviewing. So think of this much like in South Korea, where the tracer has a lot of information at hand when they do the interview with the person to help them out. Now, with COVID safe, we don't necessarily need to hand over private information to the interviewer. You know, when I go for a run, I'll use Strava, some kind of recording app, and I'll see where I've been. And that helps me remember. Like when I'm done, I'm like, uh, like I'll often run in a new city because I travel a lot. And I'm like, oh, where did I go? And then I look at the map. And if your phone just records locally where you've been and keeps it all the data locally on your phone, then during the interview, you can just bring that up and look at your map. And in a systematic way, you can just walk through with the contact tracer to refresh your memory. Because if they're like, hey, Ben, where were you like last Wednesday evening? Okay, now you're like, yeah, I was at right. home because like everyone's self-quarantined. But if the economy is working, you might be like, I don't. Uh, yeah, yeah. Google Maps has had this for a while. I remember you could sort of like, you know, go back over the ghost lines of where, you know, what neighborhood did I go to? What friend did I visit? And it will show you the history of, you know, your little crisscross. That's right. That's right. So, so you really just want like these history things turned on and you're forward recording it. And you don't even have to transfer this information over. It's just during that real-time interview, you're going to have this information to make it much easier to bring up this information as opposed to this like very slow process of forgetting everything because it might just be people's memory aren't that good and you're missing too many just from that alone, which would prevent suppression. And then the details like, how do you just transfer your contacts over? Because if you have an accent or the phone line's bad, 
it's just going to take a ton of time reading every phone number, reading every email, right. double checking it. And it'd be nice to just click a bunch of things, send them a file over, done, and move on. One of the things that we had talked about earlier when Paul and Sarah and I were discussing this was the opt in, opt out. So, you know, Google and Apple were saying, you know, we're going to make this available as sort of a broad cross-platform standard that would work on, you know, whatever it is, 90% of mobile devices. I don't know what their market share is. But then, you know, as you're pointing out in South Korea, they passed these laws after several other pandemics that the government can turn this on without people opting in. In the U.S., it was going to be, well, you'd opt in to download the app and say, okay, I consent to being tracked at all times. And the thing we were, Paul and I were asking was sort of like, or Paul was really asking this was, then how do you alert it when you've had it? And how do you do that in a way that prevents spoofing, which is to say somebody just says, okay, well, I'll just say I had it and my, me and my 10 friends, and then we'll you know, basically put a half of New York on lockdown with these false positives. So how do you deal with that? All right, all right. So, so now we're going to get into the crypto side. So first one is note that on the Bluetooth side, what's cool about this is there's no location tracing or GPS tracing because it's all proximity-based. So you never need to know where someone's been. All we need to know is to figure out who's been around which other people. So, so that's kind of nice. Like, it's like, what is my phone recording? It's really just recording the numbers of who I've been around. Okay. And now the issue is like, now we're coming into privacy and security because look at the end of the day, some privacy has to be lost because like if a manual tracer calls me up and says, Hey, Xiaomi, like you've been exposed last Tuesday. I know it had to be someone I walked by last Tuesday. And if it's a manual tracer, I actually know it's someone who, uh, who they knew. So it's like one of my friends or colleagues it was responsible. And like, look, I'm okay with that. This is a public health emergency. So there is re-identification risks. But the thing is, beyond that, you don't want like spoofing. And what you don't want to do is kind of broadcast an identity. Like if I'm sick, I don't want this big risk to say, hey, Sean Cockerty has been sick. This is where he went for the last two weeks. So here's the detail mm-hmm. that we kind of figured out. And I think so there's some similar variants by Google and the DP3T team in Europe is that you don't really want to just broadcast this list of numbers as is because now you get a bit of spoofing going on because you know someone can listen to these numbers and try to rebroadcast it and and these files also get too big to download too because you know you don't really want to have to rely on a centralized repository because that you know it's just a, a headache so what actually goes on is my phone has or will generate a private random number. Mm-hmm. Your phone will generate a private random number. Okay, and from that private random number, uh, I'm going to generate a sequence of random numbers. But of course, they're just deterministically related to my initial random number. So my first random number will be 158. Uh, but based on that, I'm going to generate another random number, which is a function of the previous random number. And then suppose that's like 389. Okay, then I'm going to generate another random number that's a function of the previous random numbers. Okay, so what's cool about this is that suppose I'm positive. Okay, and, and, this, and the key is that this function is publicly known. Okay, so the function that's being used is a public function. It's just much in the way like a lot of this cryptography is worked on. Right, like a public blockchain. Yeah. yeah, that's right, that's right. So, so this function is like everyone knows the function, but they don't know the seeds. Okay, so if I'm positive... I don't need to actually send the entire sequence of numbers I've broadcast. All I need to do is send my initial number I broadcast because I'm going to be changing my broadcast every minute. And that's pretty nice because Mm -hmm. then there's no like one number on me, right? I change it every minute and that's still okay for you because you're just recording every number you see. 
So if I'm positive, I send my first number up to this list, which is 158. But the cool thing about that is anyone who sees that first number, they can generate the entire set of numbers I broadcast from it. And so suppose my first number was 382. But you didn't hear 382, you heard 158. Okay, but when you see 382, you're going to take that number and generate everything that I've sent, and you say, hey, wait a minute, that 382 also ended up sending 158, which you heard. Okay, so there's kind of a way to certify what numbers were broadcast. And okay, why is this nice? Well, what it means is that if you are listening to all of the broadcasts I made, you still can't do identity theft because even though you heard every number I broadcast, you don't know which seed I used to generate that sequence. So somehow the sequence I've generated and mm-hmm. sent, that's very unique to me, and it's only me that can certify it. And that's kind of nice for things like rebroadcasting attacks and things like that. And, and practically, this is super, super nice because it basically means you can grab the list of every positive seeds in the country, kind of no bandwidth overhead. It's a super tiny list because it's just a list of one number and you just generate the broadcast yourself. So there's a couple of crypto tricks like this that handle the kind of identity theft and and various things like that. Now, there's certain other kinds of physical attacks one can do because these are unavoidable. Like even with any kind of uh, cryptographic scheme with like banks and things like that, with man-in-the-middle attacks. But what's pretty nice about this scheme is like the way I like to put this that I can explain to my parents is, you know, unlike crypto kinds of things where you really have to protect this private key, here every phone is literally broadcasting a random number. Okay, and why that's nice is you could consider schemes where like I'm broadcasting like my phone number, but in a cryptographically hidden way. Okay, and why is that bad? That would be bad because if someone breaks it, they have my phone number. Right, because if I was like, like when we're communicating banks and stuff, like I'm sending emails, mm-hmm. uh, that might be cryptographically secure. But if someone breaks it, they're going to have all my information. Okay, here every phone is literally just sending a random number. So if you're negative, nothing is revealed about you, which I particularly like. Right, like if you're negative, right. the only right. thing that's happening is you're just sending out a bunch of random numbers. So technically, like under GDPR right. laws, that's your information because it's random numbers, but like, look, if I'm negative, I don't care about sharing a bunch of random numbers to people. And it's only the positives that are gonna reveal something. And you know, with public health law, the positives kind of have to do the contact tracing interview anyway. So right. this isn't all that different. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Stack Overflow for Teams, the best way to organize and share knowledge across your company used by small startups and some of the biggest companies in the world today. It's free on the basic tier until June 30th with no credit card required. Head on over to stackoverflow.com teams and check it out. So we're all going to be carrying around decentralized databases of anonymized information about everyone we've, we've come in contact with, which is frankly just kind of cool. That's just a, that's a new thing for us all to do as, as humans. And it's a it's the opposite of total surveillance in a really interesting way. There was a thing you said earlier which solves a problem that I've been wondering about, which is, hey, you've come in contact 
And what I'm thinking, what what I'm thinking, and other people have thought online with this strategy is that someone's going to hit that button just to be a troll or to grief everyone. Like, oh, hey, no, I've got it. You're you, you're all in trouble. You know, you'll get on the train and then hit the button, and now fifty people will will think they've been exposed. But you said that when someone gets tested, then that public health org would sort of set that they have tested positive and then that would get broadcast out. So how does that part work where it it sounds like I can't just say like, oh, I I got it and then tell everyone at random? Yeah. So so this is how do we actually get the nuts and bolts to work right? And what's nice about the decentralized method and the protocol we've thought through is you're not really going to just broadcast the number. What's going to happen is every number that's broadcast is going to come with a signature as to who reported that. Okay, and now we can actually do both. So we can have one list that's come from a lab that's been signed by the lab, and the lab says, hey, these are the people we certify as being positive. Okay, so what one protocol can be is like when I get tested positive, I can just give, my, the, give the lab my random seed, or better yet, we could have something more secure where the lab maybe gives me something, you know, some kind of key exchange where the lab gives me a key that certifies it's them. So only, you know, my number plus the lab's key can be posted to this list and we can like secure that way. So there's going to be some list out there and who cares where it is, but it's going to be some list that only corresponds to one lab. And that's something that says, look, if I look at a number from this list, I know this has been signed by the lab and that means this lab is saying that these are positives. And there could be another list, which is these are just self-reported positives. And that one could definitely be spammed a bit. But note that spamming is a bit trickier because all you can do is put one number. So you're going to have to get like 100 phones or find some way to rotate it to try to spam a list. But the reason that the self-certified one might be relevant, so we're certainly not going to release the self-certified when we start. But when I think about this is... I would like a system that doesn't just save lives in the United States. This is a global pandemic, sure. and there's less developed countries which might not have the support structure and testing structure to have lab-certified positives. Mm-hmm. So it might be a lot of sense to have the flexibility where we can have something crowdsourced, and even if it's a factor of like two, which I highly doubt from spam, this could provide a lot of information in less developed countries with self-certification based on monitoring, And there can be cultural norms that might prevent some of this as well. But uh, it's definitely an interesting option. So quick question. Let's say you're building this app, you know, in partnership with Microsoft and the University of Washington, and then, you know, Google or Apple are building apps. Let me just jump in. So uh, actually at the beginning too. So if you could, it's really volunteers at Microsoft right now. So nothing official, but there's a huge team of volunteers at Microsoft. So volunteers from Microsoft are building this app. You know, they're working with you. You're at the University of Washington. Obviously, other people are going to be, you know, doing similar projects. And you were just talking about how it'd be great if we could have, you know, a national or even a global sort of interconnected database. But what kind of density do you need on a certain app in order for it to work? And I guess, would we need all these apps to be able to talk to each other if people were downloading different apps that all were attempting to do the same thing? Like, how do we really build sort of the national network or the international network like South Korea or China did? Great question, right? And and that's uh, also going to get into these... uh question about phases. So the question is like, how do we get these things working and not just have be a chaos of a bunch of different things floating around that can't talk to each other? Right. So interoperability, that's something we're talking to them about because you certainly want these different apps to be interoperable. And ideally, it'd be nice to settle on one of them and maybe each country can have one. But 
given the way we're setting things up, people have, you know, we put out this report too. And I think a lot of people looked at it and based on what we're doing, I think other people realized similar things. I think there are some security bugs in the original Apple Google protocol, but we set them a node and they fixed that. So interoperability, I think we can get around. Now the centralized uh, database, I think what's very nice about the system is we're really setting it up to be decentralized. So I think there's a couple apps that came out in the U.S. or ideas floating around of more centralized procedures, mm-hmm. which, you know, centralized is tricky because you don't want trusted third parties for these things. So here, you know, every lab can have their own list and you could certainly pull them all into another big list, but you don't really need anything central or a coordination point. Like it's really decentralized. So I think that's a strong point for making things coexist because as long as it's decentralized and interoperable, then it's like whatever one works for adoption might be the one that takes off. Now let's go to, I think, the harder questions of what would it take for this to actually work in terms of penetration and adoption? And this is also why I think what we're doing is pretty relevant, that phase one really has to be manual. So suppose 10% of the people adopt. And that seems like a pretty high number to get going pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But suppose 10% of people adopted. Well, what do we need to have happen for it to be effective? Both parties need to be using it. So how many people do we catch this way? Well, it's 10% of 10%. So 1% of the cases we catch. Because if you don't have it on your phone or I don't have it on my phone, then mm-hmm. it's not going to work if we're, too, we're together. So right. the growth rate, so the effectiveness of the manual side is really quadratic in the adoption. Well, the growth rate in our assisted technology is really linear. And that's actually something that the assisted side that, you know, during a manual tracing interview, you could actually download the app to help them out. So the adoption definitely is something that's tricky. You need pretty high penetration. Some people don't have phones in certain parts of society. There might be like age-related factors, like some demographics might not actually have that many phones or socioeconomic classes. At work, some people might not be able to use their phones. So it's definitely going to miss cross-sections as well. So there's an aspect in which this thing might have to be rolled out a bit later, and it might have a higher number of false alerts. So you might need even more tests around for this to be effective. But there are tricks that we're thinking about of how to really get adoption high in terms of social norms because, you know, if I think about my game theory hat and individual rationality, there isn't much utility that from the Bluetooth side for any one person to use it because uh, what I really want to do is have everyone else use it and then I'm safe if it's not floating around society, right? Mm -hmm. And so how do we kind of incentivize people to use it where, you know, it's like a vaccine and a lot of the time, you know, it'd be great if everyone else is vaccinated because then you could just be a free rider, right? So how do we solve the kind of free rider problem? Because like, you know, if mm-hmm. 95% of the people adopted, why should I bother? Sure. Because it's suppressed and I'm not going to get it. So one way we're thinking about is kind of public signaling where, you know, if I throw a party at my house, that's actually when I want everyone else to be using the app. So I could easily have something that, look, you just flash it, some kind of QR code, and you see everyone has the QR code for that day, and that means they're using it. Okay, and this mm-hmm. is the same thing with like the essential workforce. Like Companies, they really want to protect their citizens right now, or their employees right now, if they're coming to work. And then they could easily set up ways to, like, look, if you have this thing running, you don't need to get a temperature check every day you come into work. 
or you can join these public meetings or certain safe spaces. So there are kind of optional ways that we can check if people are using it. And note, because the reports are voluntary here, you know, if someone's coming to my home, I don't really care if they're going to report it themselves as long as they're using it. I'm, you know, I would think the majority of people, if they're actually using it, they would definitely self-report because you're going to get caught with a contact tracer anyway. And certainly, like, if I'm positive, I'm definitely going to, like, anonymously let people know. It's more just, can we get enough people to use it? But there could be, like, social engineering tricks. We're talking to some people who are, like, psychologists to try to figure out what are ways to get adoption in this regime that, you know, you have this free rider problem. You know, one route is just make it, like, kind of cool to download it where it's just like the norm but another is really just approaches where through signaling we can see if we can get other people to use it what kind of help do you need so i think the real one we're trying to do right now is this is something we absolutely need to coordinate with local public health services and we're kind of not going to go at it alone because there needs to be enough tests they need a channel to let people know what the next steps are and I think that's really where we're at now, that we're not just going to kind of release it into a wild as some kind of a half-baked app. This is something that really is going to be coordination with local governments to make sure things are right, done right. All right. So all the, all right. the big consulting programmers out there and all the people in local government, you heard it. <laughs> go, yeah. go talk to your boss. Tell them, tell them there's a thing. <laughs> We got it. We took care of it for you, Sean. Yeah. No, there no worries. Go. It's solid. Awesome. Uh, with the power of this podcast, we'll get it done. All right. And as is tradition, we're going to sign out with a lifeboat here. This was awarded to Mark two days ago. Get host name from IP address. Thanks, Mark, for sharing the knowledge and saving a question. I'm Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. You can find me at Ben Popper on Twitter. I'm Sean Kakade. I'm a professor at, of computer science and statistics at the University of Washington. It was a pleasure to be here. You can find me at the University of Washington. So just search Sean Kakade, K-A-K-A-D-E. My name is Paul Ford. I'm the co-founder of a product studio called Postlight in New York City. If you want to get in touch, I'm at F-Train on Twitter. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. This was part two of a two-part episode. So if you didn't catch Tuesday's episode, go on back and listen to that. You can hear more of us discussing with Professor Sham Kakaday the ins and outs of contact tracing and technologies that can protect perhaps civil liberties while also being used to battle against the pandemic. Thanks for listening. <laughs>